We're going to read from God's Word at this point. This morning we've got two passages we're going to read. They're both from the book of Acts. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Now, if you have one of the church Bibles, this is on page 1092. If you don't have one of the church Bibles, well, Acts is easy to get to. You turn to the start of the New Testament, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So we're going to read two passages from Acts. Before we do, let me simply say that I'm hoping that maybe from next week we're going to be back into a series again. This is a one-off service that we're having this morning. And the reason that we're looking at Acts is that there is a particular verse that has been going around in my mind over the last number of weeks. And I think it's an encouraging verse. I think it's especially relevant for where we're at at the moment. And so we're going to spend some time looking at that this morning. But let's read, first of all, from Acts chapter 1. We're only going to read one verse. That's verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now we're going to read from chapter 8. So Acts chapter 8. It's page 1101 in the Church Bible. Acts chapter 8, reading from verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Well, this morning we're looking at a passage that is absolutely crammed full of surprises. And I think if we're able to grasp just how surprising this passage is, it's going to give us a lot of encouragement. And especially, I think it's going to encourage us as we think about where we are right now and as we think about the spread of the gospel in these current circumstances. Now, we're looking at the book of Acts. That's not a book that we've looked at much over the last few years. But if you're not familiar with Acts, basically this book is all about the spread of the gospel. It follows on immediately after Luke. Jesus has just been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he has given his disciples this great command. They are to take the gospel to the nations. Now, by the end of the book, the gospel really is going to the nations. Uh, there are churches in, in Italy and in Turkey. The gospel is preached in Greece and in North Africa. It's preached all over the Mediterranean. But by the start, or sorry, at the start of the book, it 
it's mainly focused on Jerusalem. And, and so the question we're asking this morning, how does the gospel go from being this relatively localised thing centred on Jerusalem, and how does it become this worldwide sensation? How does the gospel go from the Middle East to the middle of Europe? And chapter 8 of Acts is absolutely crucial in that spread. You could say that this chapter is like the breaking of a dam. You can maybe imagine what that's like. There's a crack in the wall of the dam and the crack gets bigger and bigger and the wall starts to buckle until eventually it can't take the pressure anymore and it bursts. And as soon as the wall of the dam bursts, there's this enormous gushing torrent of water and it comes out and it sweeps everything in its path. And and in one sense, Christ's enemies at the start of Acts, they've been a bit like engineers. They've been trying to keep that dam shored up. They have been trying as hard as they possibly can to keep the gospel penned into one place. But from this point on, This chapter we're looking at this morning, the gospel is going to spread not with a trickle, but with great gushing torrents across the world. And so it's an important passage for us to look at. But the main reason I want us to look at this passage this morning is because the gospel actually spreads in a very surprising way. And this morning we're going to see three great surprises. And I think those three surprises should be an encouragement to each and every one of us. Now, I should say we are not in exactly the same situation as these believers. There are similarities, but the same principle applies as much today as it did back then. And the main principle we're looking at this morning is that God works in surprising ways. God works in surprising ways. And we're going to see three great surprises. So the first surprise we see this morning is a surprising place. A surprising place. Now I want you to notice verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Now, I have to say, for us, That doesn't seem terribly notable, does it? But the reason why we don't find that surprising is because we are very far removed from what was going on in this passage. We struggle to understand what life was like in Judea. And this morning we need to realise that this verse is genuinely groundbreaking. It's hard to illustrate it, but maybe imagine at the height of the Cold War. Um, say around about the time of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Imagine you were to read in the paper that McDonald's is opening a brand new restaurant and that restaurant is in Red Square in Moscow. Or imagine that you're talking to one of your neighbours and your neighbour tells you that they're about to go on a family holiday, they're going to be away for a few weeks and whenever you ask them where they're going, They say we're going to North Korea. Now, I'm not saying this is the same, but what I want you to do is to just imagine that initial gut reaction you would have if you heard either of those two things. You'd think you're hearing things. 
it would seem absolutely crazy, wouldn't it? And for anybody living in Jerusalem who reads a verse like this, it would have seemed absolutely bonkers. You know, part of our problem is whenever we hear the word Samaritan, we tend to think of the good Samaritan. Or maybe we think of the charity. Of course, the charity got its name from the Good Samaritan. But we need to realise that is not the way that the word was used back whenever this passage was written. Jews and Samaritans were about as opposite as you could possibly get. They were like Republicans and Democrats, or like cats and dogs. Now, we could go into the history of why these two people disliked each other so strongly. We won't go into all of it. What we will say is this. The Samaritans were living on land that was supposed to be part of Israel. The Samaritans claimed to follow the true God, and yet they rejected most of the Old Testament. The Samaritans set up their own rival temple, and they refused to go to Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a long history of idol worship and compromise and heresy. The Jews didn't like them, and they didn't like the Jews. I think quite a striking example of that is Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 to 56. Jesus goes to a Samaritan village. He's on his way to Jerusalem. But whenever they realise that he's going to Jerusalem, the people say in verse 53, you're not welcome. And you can see James and John's reaction. They say, let's ask God to burn the village to the ground. There's real, serious hostility. And yet, what do we read in Acts chapter 8? The good news is being preached in Samaria. And not only that, but there are miracles, there are conversions, and there is incredible joy. How shocking must this have seemed to so many people? Are you really saying that that thought over there are believing the gospel? Do you really mean that that bunch are prepared to lay down their differences and be called brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, I'm sure at first there must have been lots and lots of Christians and they didn't believe a word of it. But it was true. It really happened. And I think that there are a number of very helpful applications for us today. The first application, you can't write people off. I mean, just think of our country. Think of how completely disinterested so many people are in the gospel. Think of how brash people can be. You know, they say there is no place for, for, for Christianity, there's no place for the Bible in modern society. Well, here is a passage that shows just how dramatically all of that can change. Just think of some of the people you know, your colleagues, your friends, your loved ones. Maybe they're disinterested in the gospel. Maybe they're not even just disinterested. Maybe they are downright hostile. 
they get upset every single time it gets brought up. Well, does this passage not show us that there is not a single person in the world who's beyond the reach of the gospel? It doesn't matter what they've said in the past. It doesn't matter how much they've laughed. It doesn't matter what sort of life they've lived. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. Not your husband, not your wife, not your son or your daughter, not that neighbour, not that friend. This is a really encouraging passage. I think as well as that, it's a challenging passage. Doesn't this passage ask the question of us, who are you praying for? Who are you praying for? Are you praying for those lost causes? Are you praying for that loved one who's made his feelings clear? Are you praying for people who who seem like they will never, ever be interested in what Jesus Christ has to say? Who knows how God might work? And maybe for some of you watching, there's a particular challenge in this passage. It may be that some of you are watching and normally you don't go to church on a Sunday morning. Maybe some of you see yourselves as outsiders. You see yourselves as being a bit like a Samaritan. Maybe you you find it interesting, but you could never see yourself as becoming a Christian. This passage shows us whoever you are, however different you may be, however much of an outsider you might be, If you accept the good news about Jesus, there is a place for you among his people. So the first thing we see in this passage is a surprising place. The second thing we see, a surprising catalyst. A surprising catalyst. Now, at this point in Acts... The gospel's just about to explode across the world. It hasn't done it yet, but it has now in this chapter broken into a place that you would say is impossible. It has transformed people that you would say are completely beyond hope. And so the question we want to ask is why? What exactly has caused the gospel to do this? And of course we could think of all sorts of possible answers to that question. Uh, Maybe the leaders of the church have sat down, they've got out their maps, they've plotted out this strategic plan for where they're going to go, or maybe they've held a huge big fundraising drive and they've raised lots of money and now they're going to pay for lots of missionaries to go out with the gospel. Uh, Maybe the leaders of the church have trained a crack team of super apostles And they've trained them to to do public speaking. They've trained them to electrify their audiences. But, But no. The real cause of the gospel spread is far more surprising than that. Now, back in chapter 6 and 7, some of the Jews who despise the gospel have arrested one of the Christians. That's a man called Stephen. 
They have made up all sorts of ridiculous charges against him. They've dragged him to court. They have got people to lie in the witness stand. And at the end of chapter 7, they actually stone Stephen to death. And we are told in uh, chapter 8 verse 1 that on that same day, there is a huge persecution. Now, it would be helpful for us to try and imagine what it must have been like to live through that persecution. Imagine having to run for your life because there's there's an armed gang just down the street and they're out for blood. Imagine maybe being a teenager and your mum, your dad have been arrested and now you are in charge of providing for your family. Imagine being a wife whose husband has been murdered or arrested. Imagine being a refugee who's on the run and now you're in a completely foreign country and you don't know if you're ever going to see your friends or your neighbours again. Imagine how much heartbreak these Christians must have gone through. Imagine how many tears they must have wept. It must have been absolutely horrific. And yet, something amazing grows out of this horrendous persecution. We see it in verse 1. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, this verse is very, very important. I want you to compare it to chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, we read that verse earlier. This is Jesus setting out his roadmap for the gospel. And he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when you realise how these, these two verses tie together, you see that this isn't a disaster. This is not the end of the gospel. You realise Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is making sure that the gospel goes exactly where he always wanted it to go. I mean, who would have thought it? This persecution, you would think, would be something that would strangle the church. You would think it would be the end of the gospel. And yet this is the very thing that breaks the walls of the dam and makes the gospel go gushing out. Now, some of you have maybe worked out why this particular verse has been going around my head. I want to remind you this morning that the Lord Jesus is in control. I want to remind you that it is possible for something to seem like it's the end of the world. It is possible for something to seem like it's going to strangle the church. It is possible for something to seem like it's going to stop the gospel. And yet it can be the very thing that Jesus uses to make the gospel spread. Just think about what's going on in our country today. Not just our country, but countries all across the world. How many church buildings are currently lying empty? How many evangelistic meetings have already been cancelled? 
How many go teams, holiday Bible clubs, camps, Christianity explored courses just aren't going to happen in 2020? And yet I wonder, in years to come, are we going to hear of people who have come to faith this year, not when they were sitting in a pew, but when they were sitting in their living rooms and they went onto YouTube on a Sunday morning? How many people will we hear of and they decided to read the Bible for the very first time because they were scared? Maybe even for for some of you this morning, God has used this current crisis to make you hear the gospel for the very first time. My challenge for, for all of us this morning is that we should pray that God would use this crisis as a catalyst for the gospel to go to places where it's never been before. Who knows what remarkable things God might do through this crisis. So we've seen, first of all, a surprising place. We've seen a surprising catalyst. The third surprise we want to see this morning, surprising missionaries. Surprising missionaries. Okay, so we've seen that this persecution is the catalyst that prompted this move into Samaria. But another question we could ask, how exactly did the gospel spread once it got there? And again, if you didn't know any better, you might think it's because of some great charismatic preachers. But it's not. Notice verse 1. Notice the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And with the exception of Philip, who was one of the leaders in the church, this seems to be ordinary Christians. We're not speaking here about men who have been to theological college. We're speaking here about ordinary, everyday Christians. And notice, as they go, they preach. Now, that word preach doesn't necessarily mean preach in the the narrow way that we use it. It's not men standing up in pulpits and doing sermons necessarily, although there may have been some of that. What's happening here is that these Christians, as they are scattered, as they flee from persecution, they're speaking about Jesus. There's two things that I want to say about this. The first thing, I have a question. What is it that drove these people to keep on speaking about Jesus? I mean, think about it. They've been through so, so much already. They have been through this incredibly traumatic experience. Some of them have lost loved ones. Some of them have escaped by the skin of their teeth. All of them have lost their homes, they've lost their possessions, they've lost friendships. I mean, you would think, surely, if you have lost all of that because of this religion, you would let it go. You would think that the last thing you would do would be to cause more trouble for yourself in this new country, and that you would just lie low. And yet, these people can't seem to help themselves. 
what they have in Jesus Christ is so incredible, they just can't stop talking. They are amazed at how their sins have been forgiven. They are staggered at how their eternal life has been guaranteed. They are flabbergasted that the Son of God himself would die in their place. Their minds are boggled by the fact that God would invite them to be part of his family. They just can't get their heads around it. They can't understand the full extent of these riches that Jesus Christ has poured upon them. They can't understand the extent of his grace, his peace, his wisdom, his love, all of these incredible spiritual blessings. And so they can't stop talking about it. And you know what? It doesn't matter to these people what the consequences are going to be. They're just blown away. Let me say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, let me ask you a question. Is this not something that you want? Is there even one single thing in your life that is anywhere near as brilliant as this? Surely not. I mean, just think of of all the things that have been lost over the last month or so. People have lost their jobs, they've lost their businesses, their sport, their hobbies, their weddings, their parties, their holidays, all gone. And yet here is something that is infinitely better than that and there is not a single thing that can take it away. Losing your home can't take it away. Becoming a refugee can't take it away. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, you can have this. This can be yours. Second thing I want to say, this is for Christians. I want you to look at the remarkable impact that ordinary Christians can have when they respond to a crisis in a Christ-like way. You know, I, I like the way that Gordon Kelly put it. He says these people were not full-time Christian workers, but they were full-time Christians. And so I want to encourage you, respond to this current crisis as a full-time Christian. I want to encourage you to watch the news each day with the glasses of faith. I want to encourage you to remind yourself each day the Lord Jesus is in control. And who knows? Who knows what sort of opportunities you might have because of this crisis? Who knows the different ways that you might be able to model Christ-like trust? I want to encourage you to look for opportunities. Maybe there are people you know and they're isolated and they're scared and maybe you can help those people by picking up the phone. Maybe you will have the opportunity to speak to those people about your faith in Jesus. Maybe there are practical ways you can help. Maybe there are people who are vulnerable in your area and there are practical ways that you can model the love of Jesus. 
And even if there's nobody who comes to mind, and even if that's not a possibility for you, what you can do is that you can pray. You can pray that God the Holy Spirit will work through our reactions in the midst of this crisis. You can pray that as people around us are losing their heads, that they will see the calmness and the confidence of the people of Jesus. You can pray that that calmness will lead to opportunities to speak about the gospel. You know, we see people all around us and they're incredibly selfish. They're not doing a single thing to change their lifestyle. They're not doing a single thing to slow the spread of the virus. Well, you can pray that our determination to do everything we can will show just how much Jesus values human life. You know, it may be that some of us suffer severely over the next few months. That may be financial. It may be physical. Some of us might become seriously ill. Some of us might even lose loved ones. Look at this chapter. In the furnace of suffering, God used these people who suffered in a Christ-like way to fuel the spread of the gospel. Is that not something that we can pray for ourselves, for our church, for our nation? You know, I look at our nation, I look at the people around us and I think, it's too far gone. They're never going to embrace the gospel. But Ireland It's nowhere near as bad as Samaria. Who knows what God might do for us over the coming months. And long after coronavirus is gone, who knows? There might be joy in heaven, even more so than there is joy in this Samaritan city. And who knows what part you and I might have to play in the spreading of that joy, and in the spreading of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to view our suffering through the glasses of faith. Help us to be like these believers in Acts, and help us to understand that the Lord Jesus is in control. Father, we pray that in the midst of this current crisis, you would help us to understand. Help us to understand that you are wise. Help us to understand that you are in control. Help us to understand that even the most difficult things we experience are part of your good and your gracious plan for our world. Father, we pray for our nation. We think of so many people, colleagues, neighbours, family members even, and they're scared, they're lonely, and they're panicked. But Father, worst of all, they are completely without hope. And so Father, we pray that you would use this crisis. We pray that it would be like the breaking of the walls of the dam. We pray that the good news and the hope of the gospel would come gushing out like a torrent. We pray, Father, that it would change many, many lives. We pray that you would bring hope 
where there is no hope and that you would bring light where there is darkness. We pray that you would bring peace where there is panic and we pray that you would bring comfort where there is fear. Father, we pray that you would use us as part of this. We pray that you would help us to respond to this crisis in a Christ-like way. We pray that you would help us more than anybody else to value life. We pray that you would help us to be serious about doing our part to slow the spread of this virus. But we pray as well that you would help us to be calm and confident and considerate. We pray, Father, that in every interaction we have, whether those are interactions over the phone or interactions online or wherever they may be, we pray that you would help us to display the hope of the gospel. Father, we pray that through our witness as a church and as individuals, that people would be drawn to the Saviour and that they would receive the peace and the blessing that only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would work through us and we pray that you would do it for the glory of our Saviour. Father, we ask it in his name. Amen.